Hello and welcome. You are listening to Frequency Bay, and I am your host, Madam Butterfly. So we have here a <sighs> we've got a um, pretty insane episode for you guys today. Today's episode is going to be on the topic of the connection between climate change and racism, because there have been multiple articles that have been released that I've noticed that talk all about the disconnection between non-people of color, people of color, and climate change. And I can understand that it's real. Um, And apparently there is a... um, There is a spectrum. So we're going to dive into that today. We're going to dive into that spectrum and kind of gain a better understanding of why radical injustice is so intricately tied to, you know, climate change. Uh, Before we get into that, though, there's something else that I want to go over, and that is the racist history of toilets. So let's go ahead and see what this is all about. This should be this should be fun. Uh, This is this is on YouTube. This is uh, The Guardian. And we're going to see what they have to say. Uh, I ran across this this article on accident, actually. Most Americans do this. Right. Just flush the toilet. We all do that. That was second thought. But just 20 minutes outside of New York City, in Mount Vernon, you'll find sewage backing up into people's homes. This is what a basement looks like. That bubbling there is water coming up out of the sewer. And it's not just a Mount Vernon problem. All throughout the United States, inadequate sanitation disrupts people's lives far too often. Today, more than one million Americans don't have access to complete indoor plumbing, which means they might not have running water, or they could be missing a sink, or a flush toilet, or a shower. And it's a problem that disproportionately affects communities of color. Black and Latino households are nearly twice as likely to lack indoor plumbing as white ones. Native Americans, nearly 19 times more likely. Why? So why is it that in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, some people can't access something as fundamental as safe and reliable sanitation? Sewage systems have been around in some way, shape, or form for thousands of years. And societies without proper sewage systems quickly learned why they're needed. For example, in 1854, a cholera epidemic killed hundreds of people in London's Soho neighborhood. The outbreak was later traced back to a single water pump contaminated with sewage. Waterborne diseases also reached the U.S., which faced its own outbreaks of cholera and typhoid in the 19th century. American cities gradually improved sanitation by building centralized sewers and treatment plants. And by the end of the century, most major U.S. cities had some form of sewage system. Sanitation progress continued into the 20th century. In 1950, 27% of Americans didn't have complete plumbing. By 1970, that number plummeted to just under 6%. And in 1972, the Clean Water Act was passed, making funding available for wastewater infrastructure. But racist policies often excluded people of color from this progress. For example, in 1954, 
The city of Zanesville, Ohio built a water line that stopped just short of a predominantly black neighborhood called Coal Run. This is a map of what water access looked like in the area. Households with water access are shown in blue. Those without water access, located primarily in Coal Run, are shown in gray. Black citizens in Coal Run spent decades requesting access to the water supply, but various government authorities denied those requests, all the while granting access to white residents on the same street. Another example, throughout the 20th century, California's farm worker communities didn't receive the same level of investment as wealthier, whiter urban areas, leaving them unable to become official incorporated cities with their own local governments. So when infrastructure funding became available in the latter half of the century, these unincorporated communities weren't eligible to get a cut of that money. Yet another example, in the 1970s and 80s, the U.S. passed landmark environmental laws that funded massive upgrades to water and sewage infrastructure. But Native American nations were not initially eligible for this funding, and they still face barriers to accessing funds today. Making matters worse for excluded communities, the funding landscape for sanitation upgrades has shifted significantly. In 1977, the federal government played a huge part in helping communities pay for their water and wastewater systems. But when communities who were left out tried to catch up nearly 40 years later, the federal government had basically moved on. This is Veronica reyes -Ibarra. In July 2019, Veronica received a letter saying that she may have been infected with a potentially deadly parasite called strongyloides. And she wasn't the only one. 15 of her neighbors received the exact same test result. To read that you're positive for a potential deadly parasite was extremely scary, not just for myself, but for the whole community. Veronica and her sister Monica live in a tiny Texas community called Rancho Vista. Rancho Vista doesn't have sewer lines and instead relies on underground septic tanks to collect wastewater. In theory, that wastewater is supposed to degrade and seep into the ground. The problem is the soil in Rancho Vista isn't right for that kind of system, which leaves residents to deal with sewage problems and the health risks that come with them. Researchers studying Rancho Vista believe the Strongyloides cluster is related to sanitary system failures. Veronica's sister Monica says these issues have been ignored in their community because it's predominantly low income and Mexican American. It's really hard to think about these conditions happening in a middle-class white neighborhood. Like, this would never happen. Residents of the majority black town of Mount Vernon, New York, have faced similar sanitation issues. Daisha Torsha has seen raw sewage regularly flood her home for about 10 years. You work very hard to have a home and having consistent sewage problems, it really impacts my quality of life and, oddly, my sense of self-worth. It's a pretty common problem in the city because its wastewater runs through 100-year-old clay pipes that strain under the pressure of the population. Damaged sewer lines can cause sewage to back up into basements and flood homes like Torsha's. Sanitation problems aren't going unnoticed by policymakers. Mount Vernon, for example, recently received an unprecedented $150 million in state funding to overhaul its sewer system. And through the bipartisan infrastructure law, 
new federal funds are available for wastewater infrastructure improvements. The Biden administration has promised that disadvantaged communities will get their fair share of the funds and recently set aside $154 million for Native American tribes. We don't yet know whether these investments will be enough to close the gap in sanitation conditions, a gap created through a long history of racist policies and funding shortages. But what we do know is that a basic and critical service that most of us take for granted is something more than a million Americans are still fighting for. This was a really good piece by The Guardian. Um, <laughs> this is something that I'll probably do an episode on in the future, but I wanted to touch on it a little bit because uh, I decided, you know, why not seize the moment uh, and bring it up uh, along with, you know, a slew of other topics that um, affect the black, brown, and indigenous communities uh, all around America. Um, this doesn't really surprise me. Um, you know, on one hand, palm colored people were incredibly racist back when my parents were my age and my grandparents were my parents' age. And on the other, on the other side of that spectrum was the, um, you know, government officials and people in power who uh, made or backed that racism and made it possible. I think that when you know racism is dismantled and acknowledged that it needs to be a twofold type of situation. Uh, don't just address the institutions, address the uh, address the the government that backs these you know institutions and backs these people and their negative behavior. But yeah, I definitely wanted to start off with that. Um, after this, though, we will be getting into a very interesting uh, panel discussion that the New York Times, I believe, uh, had um, in regards to the... Uh, in regards to racism and then also um, climate change and its connection. Indigenous peoples have been on the front lines of environmental racism 
Oh my God! Yes. For decades, and I think that I don't think what nobody else has been on the front lines like black brown indigenous, indigenous people. They laid down their bodies, the and facing for decades are now leaking out into the commons. Yeah. And other people are starting to become affected. Yeah. that really got me moving in regard to environmental justice was growing up on an island nation where we were prohibited from being able to actually go into the water that surrounded us. When I was a child, the, going into the river was one of the things that I would get in the most trouble for with my family because it was so contaminated that people that would go into the water would get sores on their bodies. And so there was this deep grief in the community about not being able to interact with the waterways that surrounded us um, in ways that have historically defined our culture. Environmental justice is a term that is thrown around quite frequently. And I think that a lot of people have this idea that it's this separate component that people need to be working on. But for us, environmental justice is really about harmonized relationship, what we call It's about living in kinship with the rest of creation, with all life. So we understand that we have a certain responsibility to honor the right that all other living beings have to continue to exist uninhibited, unmolested in their natural environment just as we do in ours. No. <laughs> Oftentimes the voices that are allowed to come forward um, are not the voices that we most need to hear. So for um, the past 25 years I've been working with indigenous spiritual leaders who are the ones who are really responsible for maintaining this traditional indigenous way of life, what we call and those voices are not allowed at the table. And so we have these um, keepers of our traditions with they're not allowed at the table because they make the most sense. <laughs> They're not allowed at the table because they make the most sense. Just wanna just wanna context. Just put that in there. Alright, let's let's get back to this. Who have been kept out of the discussions because it's only the elected leaders um, or those who have been positioned by the colonial governments to be authorities who are allowed to speak at um, some of these really critical um, meetings that are determining what happens in indigenous communities. And so if we don't have the right voices coming to the fore. It doesn't make sense to me that uh, indigenous people aren't having the last say about what happens in their own fucking communities. That's, that's pretty ass backwards if you, if you ask me. voices aren't really honored and respected, then we're not going to see the type of movement that's necessary in order for us to be able to sustain life on the planet. We have to be engaging in active nonviolence. Uh, we have to be able to be addressing some of these challenges in ways that support life rather than foster death. And I think that one of the things that has been deeply ingrained into people's minds is that um, in order to overcome a challenge, we have to conquer it. 
So this conquest mindset um, is one of the, the sicknesses that is a, a remnant of colonization, that we have this mindset that we have to conquer everything that comes before us. What often happens is that critical issues like climate change, uh, critical issues like the contamination of our waterways get couched as indigenous issues, um, when in fact these are issues of human survival. We've reached this place where indigenous rights, environmental justice, and human survival have come to this nexus point where there can no longer be an, a separation um, between those things. And so when we're talking about indigenous issues, we're talking about the protection of the last pristine places on the planet. We're talking about the preservation of vital ecosystems. We're talking about the preservation of a way of life that has allowed life to be sustained for tens of thousands of years here. Um, that can lead us back into right relationship with the rest of creation. All right, so I'm going to stop there for now, but I will be posting all of this information on, you know, my social media platforms, uh, primarily Facebook, on my uh, Frequency Based Facebook page. You guys can go there and check me out, or check out this video and the other articles and, um, panel discussions that I'll be posting. Uh, next, we're going to get into the panel discussion and also some lectures and articles, and I will be back. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, what's going on? You're listening to Frequency Bay, and I'm your host, Madam Butterfly. Thank you so much for joining me. So on today, we have another episode, and today's episode is going to be on the topic of uh, racial justice. And climate change, uh, its connection, uh, how it works, what it is, and how to fight it. Uh, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of things today. Uh, we're going to talk about climate, ju- climate change and its relationship to uh, race and how that pipeline works because there is proximity to... Um, there is proximity to, you know, the effects of global warming and... Um, it is what you think it is if you are a avid listener of my podcast but anyway we are first going to start off with uh, a lecture something cute something light you know what i'm saying um a lecture on climate change and uh climate justice And so today, because I'm really only interested in hearing brown voices, because I believe those are the voices in which we need to elevate the most and center the most, um, yeah, that's that's where we're going to start. I definitely hope that everybody's been enjoying their week. It is Friday, ladies and gentlemen. Excuse me, thank God for Friday. Uh, I definitely have had a wonderful week myself. Um, Definitely no complaints on my end, and it's my hope that everybody else feels the same. 
because, I mean, why not have a wonderful week, right? environment Alright, so we're going to listen in on how to collaborate for environmental justice by Kathleen, Kathleen Morris. Um, this was a 2020 um, TED Talk um, conversation that, well not conversation, but a public speaking event that Mrs. Kathleen Morris had back in 2020. Kathleen or Kat Morris is a scholar activist engaged in community organizing while uh, complementing her while complementing her uh, masters of pu of public policy at UConn during her uh, undergraduate years she studied cognitive science ooh and anthropology graduating man <laughs> magna cum laude honors uh, as a bold scholar, Kat uh, conducted independent research on uh, cross-cultural engagement and intersection, intersectional activism among Yukon uh, affiliates and founded Yukon Collaborative Organization for Grassroots Justice. In this TED Talk, she discusses environmental racism and climate disasters from a local to global scale and the power of collaboration organizing with love she hopes viewers take from this talk the ability to connect uh, issues of social and environmental injustice as well as the ability to see how we're connected to each other the land and all our animals as social beings in a uh, a shared uh, economic and a shared ecosystem, Kat dares you to embrace concepts of radical love in addition to create a broader and um, 
a brighter and inhabitable future for all. Hell yeah. Love it. Where'd it go? Alright, let's get started here, folks. Picture the world in five years. What do you see for yourself and your loved ones? What about 10 or 20 years? Where do you call home? What are you hopeful for? I'm hopeful for a world where social and environmental justice is an attained reality and not some ambitious goal. And I believe that is possible through the power of love. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a vivid reminder that we are intimately connected with nature and all of its living beings. Whether we recognize it or not, we are a part of this ecosystem and our actions have tangible consequences. However, the burden of these consequences are not evenly distributed. These disparities were not born in 2020, despite how chaotic this year has been. Long-standing environmental racism, whereby Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities are disproportionately exposed to toxins and hazardous waste facilities as companies deem their communities more profitable places to do their dirty work. These same people suffer food apartheid as they're deemed not profitable enough for grocery stores. Connecticut is not exempt from this, as one-fifth of the entire state's pollution is located in Bridgeport, Hartford, New Haven, Stamford, and Waterbury. The five out of 169 municipalities where 71% of all the state's people of color live. Bridgeport and Hartford, two of my hometowns, have the largest and second largest incinerators, yet I remember struggling to find a good grocery store and healthy food. And the result of this occurring nationally? High rates of cancer, high blood pressure, low birth weight, diabetes, severe asthma and upper respiratory disease, an increased risk of heart attacks, hookworms, heat strokes, and lead poisoning. Environmental racism made communities of color especially vulnerable to the worst outcomes of the COVID-19 pandemic. And to the same effect, environmental racism leaves communities of color especially vulnerable to climate change. Consider Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Maria. With Cancer Alley in Louisiana and the ever-present colonialism of Puerto Rico, these communities were deemed disposable long before the hurricanes hit. And afterwards, they became climate refugees in search of a new home only to be met with hostility and violence. Their humanity disregarded yet again. This is the case all around the world as the so-called Global South currently faces climate disasters, famine, and drought with little to no acknowledgement or aid. But this is the case in your backyard, too.
Consider which areas of Connecticut lose power for the longest and get plowed last after extreme tropical and winter storms. These are not issues we can simply ignore as it will only get worse. The science indicates that we have less than 30 years to radically change the world. Frankly, I don't even believe we have 30 years. And while that may sound terrifying, as it should, I think I know the solution. Intersectional activism and collaborative organizing with love. So what does that mean? Let's start with intersectionality. Intersectionality is a term coined by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, originally created to help legal systems better account for the unique discrimination black women face. It has since been expanded to account for all identities and their intersections, like race and sexual orientation, gender and ability, religion and nationality, and so on. There are three main pillars of intersectionality. One, structural intersectionality, which refers to how uh, inequities uh, affect people's everyday life, like unequal access to opportunity and resources. Two, representational intersectionality, which refers to how certain narratives and images are produced about individuals of marginalized identity. Consider how the news reports on certain people or how TV and movie roles stereotype others. And three, political intersectionality, which indicates how those occupying multiple identities can be caught between conflicting political agendas. Where do black women fall in feminist agendas that completely ignore racism? How are trans women of color represented or protected, if at all? Now, due to its complexity, intersectionality is often overlooked, but I'm here to tell you that embracing this complexity, embracing these intersections, is the absolute minimum for creating inclusive and sustainable solutions to the very complicated problems we face. Intersectional activism recognizes this necessity and incorporates it into organizing. Now, collaborative organizing is just a step above traditional community organizing as it allows you to organize people of multiple identities and thus address multiple facets of an issue rather than just one piece of the puzzle. Collaborative organizing means bringing everyone to their seat at the table. It's not enough to just leave the seat open. We must empower people to take up space and use their voice. That brings diversity of thought, perspective, and ideas. It strengthens collective action. And collective action requires love and solidarity to fight for each other as much as we fight for ourselves. Complex issues of environmental racism and climate change require collaborative organizing and intersectional activism to build a better, brighter, equitable, and inhabitable future. Trying to solve climate change without addressing environmental racism would be like trying to solve a gigantic puzzle with half the pieces missing. It won't work, and nobody gets to see the pretty picture.
No, I want to clarify and say that I'm not just here talking the TED Talk. I walk the walk. As a scholar activist at UConn, I got heavily involved in grassroots organizing and joined steering committees and working groups. In doing so, I noticed a jarring lack of solidarity and a complete disregard for intersectionality that was not only disheartening, but counterproductive. The potential for intergenerational, intersectional activism was wasted. But again, I knew the solution. So I founded Yukon Collaborative Organizing, also known as Yuko, and, to prov and provided this necessary infrastructure. In just our first year, we collaborated with over 20 organizations, including, but not limited to, the NAACP Yukon chapter, Yukon Students for One Health, the Undergraduate Student Government, the Graduate Employee Union, Eco Husky, Revolution Against Rape, Project Fashion, Poetic Release, Youth for Socialist Action, Fridays for Futures, and so many others. And we did amazing work together. We still do. We organized seminars, clothing swaps, sit-ins, climate strikes, and open mics. We educated and mobilized hundreds of students, faculty, and staff, and our marches have been featured in newspapers ranging from the Daily Campus and Hartford Current to the New York Times. Now, as a scholar activist, I also did research on the topic of cross-cultural engagement and intersectional activism, but I'll save that for another talk. So what are the steps? How do we practice collaborative organizing the right way? Well, we do it with love. Yes, love. So let's get into it. L, listen to learn. Listen to learn. Ignorance may be bliss for some, but it is counterproductive for all. No single person has all the answers, but when we actively listen to learn, not just to respond, we develop this collective genius that is innovative and resilient. Oh, organize with an open mind. Harness that creativity while remaining intentional. Get clear on a goal without getting locked into one way of achieving it. Think outside the box. There is no one form of activism. What matters is the intention behind the practice. The value of a variety of perspectives. Holding intersectionality at the foundation of your activism is powerful. But with that, of course, comes the responsibility to take the extra step to educate yourself and your people. You must be able to check yourself and be checked by others while admitting when you're wrong and pushing forward with a new perspective. The possibility for growth is boundless, but only when you value the perspective of others enough to lose your ego and think outside yourself. And E, engage everyone in every possible way. Now, have some scruples, but as an organizer, you want to reach folks from, from all walks of life. So you must be mindful of working people's time and inclusive of all forms of ability and language barriers. Try to think of every possible barrier making your activism inaccessible 
and create a solution ahead of time. Engage your network and encourage people to come as they are. We cannot be exclusive in our fight for justice. That is collaborative organizing with love. Listen to learn. Organize with an open mind. Value a variety of perspectives and engage everyone in every way possible. That's the power of love. Now, one of my inspirations is the late Fred Hampton, rest in power. And he said, we must fight fire with water. Fight racism, not with racism, but with solidarity. This is why I fight deep-seated hate with radical love. Systemic racism is rooted in hate. All acts of subjugation share a foundation of hate. Hate is divisive, fear-mongering, oftentimes illogical, and always misinformed. Hate keeps people apart, blocking off communication and opportunities for progress. Hate is dehumanizing and immeasurably destructive. But I believe we can rectify this. We are not tethered to this course by default, but by choice. And if we choose love, we can change the destination. Listen, existing is a group project. So when it comes to the task of preserving our world and creating an equitable society for all, procrastination is lethal. And as the global temperature continues to rise, we must understand that there are zero degrees of separation between your family and the family whose home is burning in the west coast of America, or the indigenous families in the Amazon rainforest, or the families in the southern hemisphere of Australia. And unfortunately, the list goes on. But we must also remember the actual billions of animals dying, too. We share this ecosystem, connecting our health to that of the land and all other animals. I opened discussing the COVID-19 pandemic to make it abundantly clear that environmental and social justice are one and the same. When I hear the words, I can't breathe, I think of Eric Garner, George Floyd, and all the black women whose last words we will never know, like Laylene Polenko and Breonna Taylor. But when I hear the words, I can't breathe, I also think of all the children born with asthma because their communities are polluted. And I think of all the people dying now from those same communities, from COVID-19 pneumonia. Each is the same call for justice. Collaborative organizing is, to me, the best tool for the intersectional activism necessary to address environmental racism and climate change before it is too late. To my scholar activists wondering how to begin this work, start with the body paragraph and don't hold back. Decolonize the academic spaces you exist in. Your work can have a lasting impact on this world, so make sure it is a positive one. To my grassroots organizers, 
Trust in yourself. You know your community better than anyone else, and that knowledge is power. Always think big. Build your own table, then bring your people to it. And to everyone, never forget that your life is just as sacred as the next person's. I know my black life matters, period. So know that yours does too. Do not adjust to injustice. Do not become desensitized to brutalization. Do not normalize devastation. Always challenge the status quo. Systems of oppression may be familiar, but they are not fair. We can either continue to let the mistakes and hate of the past reform itself into new systems of exploitation and destruction, or we can move forward, acting with radical love and transforming our world together. We are limited only by our imagination. So next time you picture the world in five, 10, or 20 years, picture the brightest and best possible future. I'm hopeful for a world where social and environmental justice is an attained reality through collaborative organizing and intersectional activism, but I will not wait 20 years. The future is ours to create. I believe wholeheartedly that we have the power to create the changes needed to save our world and make it a better place for all. What we don't have is the time to wait and see who will take the first step. That's on. Ooh, she, she, she most certainly said a whole, whole bunch. Um... Every word was beautiful. <coughs> Every word was an echo, absolutely, unequivocally. Um, such a beautiful message. Such an important message as well. Um, so we're going to pivot from that to an article by World Economic Forum. What is environmental racism and how can we fight it? simple um and also as usual i'll be posting all of this information on um the frequency bay page on facebook but getting into this article it says poison tap water in flint michigan uh toxic water uh dumps in the lower rio grande valley a town in China where 80% of the children have been poisoned by old computer parts. What do these things have in common? They're all examples of environmental racism, a form of systematic racism but by where communities of color are disproportionately burdened with health hazards through, politi- uh, through policies and practices that force them to live in proximity to sources of toxic waste such as sewage Sewage works, mines, landfills, uh, power set, power stations, uh, major communities suffer great rates of health problems, attend, uh, attendance on hazardous uh, pollutions, just to name a few. It was African American civil rights civil rights leader Benjamin Chives who coined the term environmental racism in 1982. Described it as a racial, um, 
discrimination in environmental policy making, the enforcement of regulations and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color, toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutions in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color from leadership of economic movements. In practice, environmental racism can take very many forms uh, from workplaces to with from workplaces with unsound health regulations to the sitting of coal fire coal fired power sanctions close to predominantly non white communities. It can mean uh, civilians drinking contaminated groundwater or being schooled in decaying buildings with uh, exorbitant problems. Many of these problems face low-income communities as a whole, but race is often a more reliable indicator of proximity to pollution. A landmark 2007 study found that academic by Robert Bullard, the father of environmental justice, found race to more important than socioeconomic status and participating and practicing the locations of uh, the location of national of the nation's criminal hazardous waste facilities. He proved that African American children were five times more likely to have lead poisoning from proximity to waste than, the, than Caucasian children. While even Black Americans making fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year were more likely to live in polluted areas than their white counterparts making ten thousand dollars in the UK. Meanwhile, a Government report found that black British children are exposed to up to 30% more air pollution than white children. People are noticing a pattern. You know when you notice a pattern, there is truth at hand. In the case of Flint, Michigan, in a prime example of environmental racism in the 2014 to save money, the city changed the city changed its water source to the Flint River but failed to treat the new supply accurately, exposing the city's 100,000 majority black inhabitants to dangerous levels of lead from aging pipes and uh, other contaminants such as E. coli. Between 6,000 and 12,000 children drank tap water contaminated with high levels of lead, a neurotoxin, while 12 citizens eventually died from Lapsberger's disease. However, for 18 months, residents complained of the foul-smelling, uh, disclosed water, discolored water of hair loss, skin rashes, and, dismissed, and were dismissed until community pressure forced them to forced the city to reconnect to the former supply and admit and admit wrongdoing. The Michigan Civil Rights Commission uh, Council that the, concluded that the low that the slow offic official reaction was a result of a systematic racism.
indigenous populations often suffer from environmental racism as well, and the U.S. Native American, Native American communities continue to be subject to large amounts of nuclear and other hazardous waste as corporations take advantage of weaker land laws, whether by the federal government hold, holds land, land in trust or beha on behalf of the tribes, decades of uranium mining on the land of the Navajo of the New Mexico have caused long-standing problems in the community from 1951 to 1971. The U.S. Uh, Health Service pro performed a massive human medical experiment on four on 4,000 Navajo uranium miners, allowing them to work without informing them of, an, of the effects of radiation. The effects were predicted, were predictable, uh, evaluating elevating levels of lung cancer and other diseases from breathing in, in random. In random, R-A-D-O-N. In 2016-2017, according to the Dakota Access Pipeline, where was another example where the tribes came up against the power of policy and lost the 1,000, the 11,072-mile oil pipeline was considered to a big, a big threat to the Standing Rock Indian Reservation water supply, as well as sites of a historic uh, importance and culturally sensitive burial grounds. Through unsuccessful, though unsuccessful, the protests caught the the public in caught the public imagination, drawing solidarity marches and support from the Bernie Sanders, from Bernie Sanders all the way. Uh, all too often, however, environmental racism occurs because communities lack the resources to raise awareness uh, or fight a costly legal battle. Resources were which are available to we which are available to whether wealthier wider communities who are better able to divert airport uh, expansions power stations landfills etc elsewhere in a process known as N-I-M-B-Y-ism, standing for not in my backyard. Huh. Environmental racism is a planet-wide problem. Globalization has increased the opportunity for environmental racism on an international scale. It, it refers to the dumping of, of pollution such as e-waste on the global south where safety laws and environmental practices are more lax. More than 44 million tons of e-waste was generally global in 2017. 6K, um, 6 gigabytes for every person on the planet. And of that, each year, around 80% is uh, exported to Asia. One e-waste hub is the town of Guinea and China, where heaps of discarded computer parts piled by the river contain contaminate the water supply uh, with cadmium, copper, and lead. Water supplies show um, lead level lead levels 190 times higher than what WHO limits 
times the World Health Organization, even a slighter increase in lead in lead levels, meanwhile, can affect the IQ and, and academic performance in children. Um, other examples include the mass shipment of spent American uh, spent American batteries to Mexico, while legal while illegal waste dumps. Excuse me from planets op from plants operating by America, Europe, and and Japanese Japanese companies have uh, resulted in soaring rates of <laughs> when babies are born without brains. So what is being done? The environmental justice movement works to raise awareness of the plights of vulnerable populations throughout academic studies, media pressure campaigns, and public activism. Grassroots movements make use of social media along with civil disobedience and marches to make their voices and views heard. The European Union where most do, uh, where most documented cases of environmental racism across the Romani people has founded initiatives including the environmental justice uh, organites uh, liabilities and trade projects which ran from 2011 to 2015 uh, and brought together scientists and policymakers from 20 countries from across the world to advance the case of environmental justice as environmental laws tighten in developed countries. However, many fear that dumping uh, activities will shift towards the global south. Combating uh, environmental racism may risk falling down the policy in the age of COVID-19, and yet with non-white people more likely to die from the virus, the higher instance of impacting factors, impending factors such as asthma and heart attack and heart disease brought about by exposure to pollution are likely to play a big part. Environmental racism is about is part of the border or is part of the broader picture of systematic racism which must be fought to bring about a fair society that was difficult to read um, I need a second so I'm going to come back I uh, can't be any more transparent than that um, so yeah like I said, again, all of this information will be on my um, 
Facebook page, my Frequency Bay Facebook page, if you want more information or if you want to read the article yourself, you're more than welcome to. When I come back, I'm going to get back into a lecture, um, or an interview, rather, um, on this same topic, and we will dive a bit deeper into it. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. You're listening to Frequency Bay. Alright, so let's pivot and talk about a little bit. And talk a little bit about uh, climate change in uh, Romania and how it's affecting some of the Romanian people in the DW and uh, documentary. Bread basket is disappearing. Climate bread, bread, bread basket is disappearing. change and decades of overexploitation is resulting in the growth of a huge desert. Is it possible to stop the expansion of the Sahara on the Danube? Something like this has no reason to exist. In 50, maybe 100 years, Bucharest will also be covered with sand. Can this still be prevented? We are in an ongoing race with the sand and climate change. Octavian Berchanu is an environmental activist and opposition politician from Bucharest. His mission is to stymie the expansion of the desert and prevent his homeland from becoming desolate. This forestry expert fights non-stop for his cause, sacrificing both his private life and his career. He even confronts the mafia when necessary. Octavian is driven because around him, the desert in Romania is expanding. And due to climate change, the situation gets worse and worse every year. Desertification uh, across Europe and in Romania doesn't mean only uh, sand on the ground, sand on the ground, but only losing vegetation, trees and things like this. Behind you can see uh, landfill, the highest structure in Bucharest, and we lost our vegetation here, it was a forest in the past, now become a desert without trees, just uh, shrubs and things like this. Octavian has identified two culprits that are responsible for turning the outskirts of Bucharest into sandy plains. Illegal garbage dumps and deforestation. Planting trees helps prevent the sand from advancing further. Lots of trees. Gorilla planting is what Octavian and his helpers call what they do, reforestation without official permission. The work is arduous. Every time when I'm arriving here, I'm, we are Don Quixotes. Uh, we have to fight a lot to maintain biodiversity in this area, to maintain a wetland here, because it was a wetland, and uh, we try to plant trees, thousands and thousands of trees on that hill, garbage hill in this place and to keep animals and birds together in the best possible way. 
The sand at this garbage dump has traveled 200 kilometers. A desert is growing here that is already 800 square kilometers in size. The sand travels as far as Bucharest. Other European countries including Spain, Portugal and Greece have a problem with desertification too. Octavian is determined to find a way to counteract it. As a member of parliament for Romania's third strongest party, Save Romania Union, Octavian walks through the corridors of power. He has far more influence now as an elected official than he did when he was solely an environmental activist. Today he's known far beyond Bucharest. Concerned citizens from all across the country send him photos and videos that show the full extent of desertification. This is the desert from the south of Romania. We saw this uh, Sahara landscape. Actually, uh, this year was a rainy one, but this is an ordinary landscape in the south of Romania. You see a lot of storm of wind, wind that is uh, bringing a lot of air pollution across half of Romania. Octavian sets out to the two main sources of encroaching sand, to the region known as Little Wallachia. He has found people there who have taken up the fight to preserve nature. He plans to meet them and later promote their cause in the capital. Octavian is doing pioneering work in small communities in the countryside, ones that are often ignored by the authorities. I go exactly where uh... <clears throat> The authorities and uh, the state is stuck and uh, is doing nothing. I start uh, looking on the satellite maps to see the origin of the air pollution. And I saw those points in, uh, on the map and I realized that I have to go there to find actually what happens in the field, to talk with the communities and uh, with uh, all the stakeholders. He doesn't benefit financially from this. On the contrary, it costs him money. Actually, I don't have uh, financial support for what I'm doing. All the money came from my pocket, and my pocket is very small because uh, I'm working uh, for the state. Actually, the state pays me with uh, 200 euros per month as a city councillor. Today, Octavian is pinning his hopes on a forest owner named Dan Popescu. Dan has deeper pockets. He earns his money by selling timber. But these trees have much more than just economic value for the entrepreneur. When I touch this tree, I feel connected to my father. He planted this forest and I continue planting for him, as he's no longer alive. 13,000 hectares were felled in the 1970s for large-scale agricultural projects. It was my father's dream to replant the forest. Not only do I want to fulfill my father's dream, I want to plant even more trees. This part of Wolakia has always been threatened by drought due to the sandy soil. For centuries, large forests prevented it from becoming a desert. Dan Popescu wants to reverse the clear-cutting of the past. 
But climate change makes the struggle to rectify previous environmental missteps a race against time. Reforestation not only offers protection from further devastation, it is also a sustainable source of income. These workers earn 18 euros a day for their backbreaking work. That might not sound like much, but it is enough to live on in this region. Many of them previously went abroad as harvest and seasonal workers, but now they are able to make a living here. Dan Popescu plans to plant 100,000 hectares, an area larger than Berlin, Germany. Dan Popescu needs someone with influence in the capital who will campaign for his reforestation plan and ensure the land is his to use. Octavian not only has good contacts in politics, as a former Greenpeace member, he is also well-connected in Europe's environmental protection movement. Former Mayor Alexandru Dunoyu works on gaining the trust of small farmers and convincing them to give up their plots of land for the forestry project. It's no easy feat. At the start, he had to push hard to win them over. We have 45 years of communism and cooperatives behind us. The people were dispossessed of their land and only had it returned a few years ago. Then we came along and asked them to make their plots available again. In the first villages we approached, the people were very reluctant. We returned with the mayor and officials from the Ministry of Agriculture to show them we meant what we said. We didn't want to take their fields away from them. We just wanted to work with them. Ten years later, we gave them wood to sell. They gave us sand, and we gave them back a forest. We kept our word. We're always available to answer questions. The landowners come to me and ask, why is it like this? How do you explain that? Why did it happen like this? Alexandru Dunoyu also owns a plot of land that he wants to offer to Don for reforestation. Here, Don demonstrates how the forest affects the climate. It's relatively cool today, only 30 degrees. But let's see how hot the ground is. 53 degrees. Normally at this time of year, the air temperature is 40 degrees, and the ground is 70 degrees. This summer, it wasn't as hot and sunny as it usually is. Which is why Alexandru Dunoyu was able to grow watermelons in his field this year. This was an exception to the rule. In the last three summers, nothing grew on this desolate sand in the blazing heat. It's just not possible in places where there are no trees and the land can't be irrigated. Another temperature check. This time in the shade of these fast-growing acacias, planted only a few years ago, just a few meters from the fields. The temperature is dropping. It started at 27 degrees and is now at 23. A 30-degree difference between the forest floor and the open field. After several hot summers, the climate is relatively bearable this year. Is the soil always this wet? Not usually. This summer is different. 
After many dry years, it's a real exception, as it's rained once almost every week. Everything is usually bare at this time of year. Normally, this would all be parched dry, and you'd see dunes bordering the forest. The sand layer is quite thick here, isn't it? The sand is very deep. I don't know how deep it goes. We dug up two meters once, and there was still sand. We didn't reach any stone. At the end of a long day, Octavian returns to his hotel deep in thought. Not only is he battling the ever-expanding desert, he also has to deal with corrupt officials who do business with the Waste Mafia. It all takes its toll. This loneliness is painful, first of all. Because for a moment you think that you have friends, but uh, when uh, things are going to be uh, much tougher than usually, they disappear immediately. It is more difficult to disappear in the middle of the night and uh, sh share location if something happens, just uh, follow the, this location and uh, search for my body and things like this. I do my best to stay alive, of course, but uh, for others, for my parents, uh, for my family, for my girlfriend, it's very difficult. Uncertain fate of little Wallachia propels him forward. In the former bread basket of Romania, it is now so dry that the yields from wheat and corn harvests are very low. A few fields are still tended to, but only to collect EU subsidies farmers reveal privately. The small town of Dabolina is located in the center of desertification in little Wallachia. The only plant that still thrives here is the watermelon. Not only is the sandy soil ideal, they also need surprisingly little water. What Bordeaux is to French wine, Dabolina is to Romanian melons. But there is a limit to what they can withstand. Entire harvests have withered under the blazing sun. Here too, we can see the effects of climate change. But Octavian suspects that climate change is not the only reason for the devastation. The cause of the desertification goes back much further. Don introduces him to Ion Spiridon, the mayor of the small community of Orzica, who is at the forefront in the fight against the expanding desert. <laughs> The mayor uses this map to explain to Octavian how the sand spreads from west to east. In 50 to 100 years, the sands will have taken over all of southern Romania. If the desert is not stopped, Bucharest will also be covered. Large oak forests can still be seen on old maps from the 19th century. They were planted by Eon Spiridon's ancestors to protect the soil. The fear of little Wallachia being silted up is not new. The problem has existed here for centuries and centuries. People say this was once a seafloor. A body of water reached up to here, leaving a long chain of dunes. About 300 years ago, people noticed that the sandy soil was slippery and planted trees there. 
They created huge forests, from us here in Urzika to the Zhu Valley. What happened to the forests? The forests were cut down under communism, and the land was used for agriculture. You know how it was back then. In order to gain more farmland, a whole lake was drained in this region, and a complex irrigation system was created. How do the authorities deal with the situation today? The Institute for Agricultural Research in Dabolina is run by the Romanian state. Director Aurelia Diaconu understands that the climate is changing and is conducting research on fruits that can be grown in the sand. We are looking for alternatives, aside from melons, of course. Melons from Dabulini are a trademark, both in Romania and abroad. But we also need to develop new trademarks for the region so that farmers have alternatives in the future. Growing melons is a short-term business. We are trying to teach the farmers to invest in long-term enterprises, for example, in orchards or berry bush plantations. It was from this very building that the state once dictated to farmers what they should plant. Nowadays, the emphasis is on teaching them. Three types of peas, different types of peanuts. We have cultivated all of these here. And this is our traditional wine, Roshiura. This also grows in fairly dry conditions. The Institute has many large fields which are regularly inspected by Aurelia Diaconu. A wide variety of crops are grown and tested here under the hot sun. For example, Chinese dates, kiwis, peanuts, beans, raspberries, blackberries, and several types of wine. All part of the agricultural program that the Institute runs as they try to adapt to the new conditions, more heat, and less rain. We are in an ongoing race with the sand and climate change. That is why we are experimenting here with new irrigation technologies, but above all, with new plant species. Some of them are very promising. We actually have good climatic conditions here. Spring comes very early in this area. We can plant seed potatoes in February and harvest new potatoes as early as April. For Aurelia Diaconu, the expanding desert is actually more of a blessing than a curse. Properly harnessed, sandy soils can yield exceptionally good produce. The aroma of the fruits that grow in sand is stronger than in normal soils. The sugar content is much higher due to the strong sunlight and high temperatures. They give the fruit its flavor, color, and quality. Can the region be saved by embracing climate change and making the best of the desertification? Octavian is seriously considering this approach as well. He wants to discuss it with experts from the World Wildlife Fund. But one thing is certain, 
Growing other fruits will not improve the climate in the area, and the devastation could continue. That's why Yulia Puyu and her assistant Diana Preda from the WWF are focusing on the complete restoration of Little Wallachia. In addition to reforesting, they plan to re-establish a huge lake, one that was drained in the 1970s to make way for farmland. Look, that was a lake. It went on for kilometers in both directions. If the Danube were allowed to flow through its old floodplains again, Lake Putello would also fill up here within a few years. WWF already revived this Romanian lake. Large wetlands in the Danube Delta were successfully restored. Here too, natural habitats were destroyed to create farmland. Today, fishery and tourism are flourishing. The combination of plants and humid conditions could secure the sand at Lake Patelu and keep the desert at bay. That is what it could look like here again. Octavian is campaigning for this in Bucharest. Local authorities, however, do not support the project. The state leases large areas of land here to international agricultural corporations. Octavian wants to know who it is that profits from this. He's determined to find out. His activism is well known in Romania. He has tangled with the mafia and organized poachers as well as with corrupt politicians. His projects receive a lot of attention and approval which both protects him and amplifies his voice. Octavian begins the last leg of his journey. The worst is yet to come. Ravenari is the second epicenter of Romania's desertification. An old coal-fired power plant has supplied the grid for almost 50 years. It's surrounded by refuse from coal mining, and the toxic sand has spread far beyond the region. Climate change accelerates the consequences of this environmental pollution. But there is reason for hope. Dinut Dinuka and his son Catalin have been working for years to turn these deadened landscapes into living ecosystems again. Dinut headed the region's forestry office for many years, and his son Catalin has a doctorate in forestry. Both are researching plants that can bring the nature here back to life. Oh my gosh. Barren, desolate landscape as far as the eye can see. Octavian is speechless at first, then angry. He reminds himself this is exactly why he began this journey. A man-made desert in the middle of an area that is already threatened by drought and no authority in the whole country seems to care. The adjacent land also looked that desolate once. But with the help of Dinut and Katalin Dinuka, nature has reclaimed the land, so it is possible to revitalize the area. On this great part, we have an entire landscape covered by ash, hundreds of hectares. On this side, we have an example, a very good example, how nature could cover this land with green. 
my mission how it uh, my mission is how to make people to understand this big picture how uh, to involve them in uh, ecological re reconstruction and to make them understand that the sand which goes with the air in Bucharest is destroying our body and our lands too and other, uh, our fresh water actually. Here too the Dinukas have used acacias. They are the first line of defense. Once a healthy layer of humus has formed on the ground in the forests, native trees can be planted again. But how long does that take? So does planting the acacia stabilize the soil? I wrote my doctoral thesis on planting in toxic soils. Acacias are like medicine for these areas. After about 20 to 30 years, you can then replace them with native trees. Father, don't go in that direction. You can see very well that actually does not exist a humus. This is ash. It's an anthropic soil at a huge, huge scale. And this is the first, this, those are the first few millimeters of humus, two or three millimeters. This is the first step to cover this, uh, this soil, this ash. His head now buzzing with new ideas and concrete solutions, Octavian heads back to the capital, back to the heart of politics. He now needs to win over powerful supporters. But it won't be easy because environmental protection projects are not money makers in the short term. So why does he sacrifice so much of his time for the common good? What drives me, uh, I, I don't have a proper answer because uh, it came from inside me. Uh, it doesn't mean a lot of effort when I'm doing something that I like it and that I love it and I have such a result. It's uh, fulfilling me with a lot of energy and hope that some some uh, things bad things will be changed in the next in the future in the close future the desert is still advancing in romania but it has formidable and creative opponents first and foremost octavian berchanu he is determined to fight and protect his homeland against the sand Thank you so much for continuing to listen. We are going to get into the next part of this lovely podcast episode. You will notice that there are many, many, many people across um, different race and in ethnicities and gender lines that are being affected by climate change. And some of them are, you know working to fight back and it's working and some of us are working to fight back and it's not working and it's different levels different variations and um some of some of us find patterns some of us don't uh and if you are an individual listening i would encourage you to get behind the to, i would encourage you to get behind the 
voices and backs of black, brown, and indigenous people in order to lift their voices, in order to um, continue this beautiful fight. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I, will, I will continue. Hello, good people, and happy Wednesday. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Madam Butterfly, and this is Frequency Bay. So I'm not going to waste much more time. Uh, we're going to get straight into it. So this is a a lecture on um, racial inequality and uh, climate change. And if you've been watching the weather recently, you noticed that... Um, Puerto Rico was recently hit with a really bad hurricane. Actually, it wasn't even that it was a bad hurricane. It was more of the fact that they have crumbling in infrastructure. And that infrastructure was never properly maintained the way it should be. And it needs to be fixed because it's super old. So they... There was more damage that was called because, caused. Sorry, because... The, the hurricane was really only a level one hurricane, um, but because of all the mudslides, a lot of their um, infrastructure was jacked up, um, which is really unfortunate because it was a situation that really didn't have to be that way, but you know, majority black place, you know how they do, uh, but anyway, um, This is something that you can catch on YouTube. It says environmental issues and racial inequality have been intertwined for decades. And climate change is to be, uh, uh, climate change is no exception rather. During this webinar, speakers will review the various ways people of color and low income communities bear an unfair portion of the burden of the, of the environmental issue. They will also uh, suggest policies and other approaches to to rectify this inequality. So let's uh, get into what they have to say. It should be pretty exciting. So this is about an hour, yeah, an hour long webinar, um, and you will of course take of course take short breaks uh, uh, every fifteen to thirty minute segments. Um, so yeah, I won't say much more other than that, oh, and, uh, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you're enjoying your Wednesday. Welcome, everyone. My name's Andrea Webster. I work with IU's Environmental Resilience Institute, and we are so happy today to bring you a webinar focused on the connections between racial equity and climate change. So all webinar attendees are muted at the moment, so please enter your questions into, into the chat function throughout today's presentation, and we will answer them at the end. Uh, as always, we will be recording today's webinar. I'll share a link to that recording along with some follow-up resources probably by Monday or Tuesday next week, and uh, I hope you'll share them with your colleagues, and I think this is going to be a fabulous presentation, so um, I think you might even want to rewatch it when it's all done. So next I'll pass it over to Janet McCabe, who will serve as our webinar moderator today. Janet is the director of the Environmental Resilience Institute. 
All right, thank you so much, Andrea, and thanks to everybody for joining us today for this important topic. Um, it really is an important topic. As most of us are aware, racial equity and environmental issues overlap uh, in many ways. Uh, climate change is no exception, um, and we're thinking a lot at the Environmental Resilience Institute about uh, the connections between social equity, um, uh, racial equity, and environmental equity. Um, so today, um, uh, I'm especially excited to have these two amazing, um, and I'll even say marvelous speakers, which is a good word to use with one of our speakers especially, um, Dr. Marva King and Brenda Scott Henry. Um, these talented women will uh, really provide a grounding for us in the historical context um, of environmental justice, um, but also um, broaden that out um, uh, to and, and, and then bring it home uh, with a local perspective from, from Gary, Indiana. Um, uh, so we're going to have a great um, presentation here, and hopefully we'll have time for your questions. Our speakers do have a hard stop at one. Um, so we won't be able to roll over today, but uh, we'll make sure that all your questions get answered. We'll also afterwards, as we always do, and thanks to Andrea for always having attention to this, send a follow-up email to everybody with a link to the recording um, and with other resources that uh, we think people might be uh, find useful. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I'm, I'm so, feel like I'm sort of overwhelmed with resources on social and environmental justice right now, and sometimes it's hard to know. Um, which ones to pick to really focus on because uh, you just can't read them all. The so um, I'd like to start today's presentation by acknowledging and honoring the indigenous communities native to uh, our region of southern Indiana. I recognize that Indiana University of Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. <laughs> so we recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land and are so very grateful to them. Uh, today's webinar is uh, hosted by the Environmental Resilience Institute. Um, I recognize many of the names um, on the uh, participant list, but some of you may be new. Uh, we have many resources that are available to local governments and the general public about environmental resilience and climate change. Um, so we would uh, uh, certainly um, draw your attention to those. Uh, one that I will highlight and that Andrea has helpfully highlighted here is the Environmental Resilience Toolkit. It's an online resource center uh, that hosts just tons of information to help Midwesterners prepare for climate change um, and, and be resilient in the face of the environmental changes that are happening. It's all, all the resources are free um, and available to everybody. Um, local governments especially can use a special tailor your search function. Well, anybody can use it, but, um, but we designed it with local governments in mind to create a tailored package of climate change, environmental resilience resources just for them on topics that they're particularly interested in with information about funding opportunities, training opportunities, case studies from uh, similar communities in the Midwest that have um, implemented projects. We don't want you to have to reinvent any single wheel that somebody else has already invented um, here in the Midwest. So um, please check that out and, uh, and any of these other resources as well. Um, I want to thank um, uh, our partner organizations, Accelerate Indiana Municipalities, the Association of Indiana Counties, Health by Design, and the Indiana Public Health Association, um, who have been uh, longtime um, sponsors and supporters of this webinar um, and help us get the word out um, and, uh, and, and, and bring this information to you. So um, many thanks to them. Um, we had 
we had lots and lots of people register uh, for, for the webinar today. Um, and, and, uh, and fortunately, many of you actually have come. Um, it's a, a, a necessary fact or an inevitable fact of um, all our Zoom lives that people register for more things that they can come to. But uh, we enjoy very robust audiences um, here at, at our webinar series. So um, thank you for joining us. And please, if you find it useful, please spread the word. Um, I wanted to mention one um, other particular thing. You'll, you'll find information about this on ERIC, but um, something called the Sustainable Development Code, which is just an amazing resource that's being developed through a project run by Drake Law School, um, involves many academic institutions. It is just the most comprehensive set of resources on different um, sustainability topics that would be of interest to local governments with good, better, and best examples of, um, uh, of different approaches that have been used by just hundreds of communities. And you can see their, their topics here. Um, I really can't commend it enough as a, as a good place to, to start for information um, if you're looking uh, to do these sorts of things in your community. Um, so let me go now to introducing our speakers. Yay. As always, I'll introduce them and, and pass it off to um, uh, Marva King first, and then she'll pass it off to Brenda Scott Henry, and then um, we'll hold questions to the end, um, unless Andrea or I see something that just absolutely needs to be clarified in the moment. So, um, Dr. Marva King um, is first and foremost, I have to tell you, a friend and former colleague of mine, um, one of my the favorite people that I worked with at EPA when I was there. Um, but without doubt, she is a leading expert on and contributor to efforts to promote environmental justice in America. Um, in 2017, she retired after uh, a long career at EPA, serving in various positions, including advisor to the Assistant Associate Administrator for Environmental Justice and Community Revitalization. Uh, EPA um, specializes in long titles for people's jobs. Um, EPA, uh, EJ, she was EJ coordinator in the Office of Care and Radiation, where I primarily knew her, um, senior policy advisor in the Office of, of EJ, um, co-chair of the Community Action for Renewed Environment um, program, which is a wonderful program, doesn't exist anymore, but helps several communities in, in Indiana um, deal with environmental issues. Um, and she was program manager for the National Environmental EJ Council. Um, from 2018 to 2020, she served on a George Mason Health and Climate Solutions Team, which was supporting community work for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. She holds an MPA from the University of Delaware and a PhD in public policy from George Mason University. And I think I was there, actually, the day that you heard you'd gotten your PhD, um, uh, Dr. King, and I remember how excited we all were for you. Um, I, second, our se second speaker is uh, a, a, a more local personal hero of mine, Brenda Scott Henry. Um, she is the Director of Environmental Affairs for the City of Gary. She has over 15 years of experience in environmental programs and services. Um, she serves as the Stormwater MS4 Coordinator um, and is primarily responsible for the planning and implementation of the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System Permanent Program. Um, she is the person to go to in Gary for environmental uh, and sustainability issues um, and just has amazing energy uh, to keep that city moving forward. Um, very collaborative uh, approach working across city departments, um, has worked with multiple mayors, um, and we're very, very lucky to have her um, in, in Gary and in Indiana. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Marva, and then she will turn it over to Brenda. 
Alrighty. Hey. Hello, everybody. So, uh, next slide, please, Andrea. So, you know, I'm an EPA retiree. Um, and so, I was asked to talk to you about EJ. Hey. Hello, everybody. So, Next slide, please, Andrea. So, you know, I'm an EPA retiree. Um, and so, I was asked to talk to you about EJ and climate change and through public health in there because it's so much a part of it. And I also threw in the recent role of Congress in there because there's so much going on right now in Congress on EJ. Next slide, please. I wanted to actually, uh, I know some of you know about EJ, but I just wanted to actually give a quick two slide overview and then um, talk to you about uh, how, how I feel, how I approached EJ when I first uh, got involved with it. And I did it in my 30s. I wasn't right out of college or anything like that. I just did a mid-career change and got into environmental justice and went to work at the EPA. So it, it, as you know, environmental justice has been around forever. I love the fact that um, Janet talked about the Native Americans uh, in, First thing, and 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 they were a big part of EJ when it wasn't even right. People weren't even writing about it or thinking about it. So it goes back a long way. But when it became a national movement, it was in 1982. And this picture shows a DC delegate uh, Fauntroy walking in North Carolina. They did the uh, nonviolent, violent uh, sit-in protest against PCB's landfill in Warren County. Next slide, please. Um, it, it's a, this is just a list and how I like to, I always like to talk about EJ is like I said, a little bit of the history. And sometimes people forget this history and that's why I put the main points up, how we got, how, how we graduated to where we are now. And I said, 82, Warren County, 83, US government accounting report, 87, UCC's Commission for Racial Justice National Study. Uh, they actually did a 20-year retroflect a, a, a little while ago. Uh, the 1992 National Law Journal. And the 1992, as I, I've told many a student, is the, is the law journal that really um, uh, caught my heart. It really um, made me think about EJ because I was I was actually getting my master's degree at University of Delaware at the time, and I was writing a, uh, I discovered EJ in a, in, a, in, a, in a book we were reviewing, a policy book, environmental policy book, and I was in the Delaware Law Library in the archives room researching it, and, I, and it was on a hot summer day. Any, any of you who w went to school uh, part-time while you worked full-time like I did, your weekends were full of school, and I'm sitting there looking at these page 
long depictions of pictures of people suffering all over the all over the country on EJ from Appalachia to Native American to inner city mm. to the rural areas and I'm crying my heart out and I went home I went home that day called my mother and told her I found what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and then I went and found a job at EPA next up next slide please so I worked in a lot of things uh, at EPA, um, but I was one of the first uh, employees in the Office of Environmental Justice. I was there when the first director, Dr. Clarice Gaylord, set up uh, the program, the EJ program at EPA that uh, is still set up the same way today. She put EJ coordinators in each of the regions, each headquarters office. She established the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council to make sure that the EPA administrator had um, uh, uh, advice, direct advice from multi-stakeholders on this issue. Uh, we, uh, I was there when we helped implement uh, Clinton's 94 uh, 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 executive order on EJ. And it, you know, every administrator since then has, um, has approved it for it to continue on. But the main point that I love about that executive order is that it established an interagency working group with all the federal agencies, and they do a tremendous a lot of work. Next slide, please. Um, those of you who don't know, I, I, I'm, uh, these are some pictures right out of grants, pictures, or places I've been throughout the years, and it, and it just gives you a face of what environmental injustice look, looks like. It just, you know, from Appalachia to Native American to cumulative impacts to, to urban environment. Um, but most important, I think, uh, is, is, believe it or not, is, well, they're all important, but most important is to make sure people uh, figure out what's going on in their community and they participate in the decision-making and, and, and um, work that partnership work that's going on in their community to make their community better. So it helps build that social capital of the community and that's what we did at EPA. One of our main things was helping to build that social cap capital in communities in danger so that they can understand and help, uh, you know, solve their own uh, problems. Next up slide, please. When I, when I talk to people, I, I wanna know, especially people who you know, solve their own uh, problems. Next up slide, please. When I when I talk to people, I, I want to know, especially people who may not know about EJ that much, I, I always think about how people who, um, you know, solve their own uh, problems. Next up slide, please. When I, when I talk to people, I, I want to know, especially people who may not know about EJ that much, I, I always think about how I learned about it and what, what were the things that I read that um, made, made sure that I knew what I was talking about. And um, these are some of those um, um, books and articles that were important to me as I was growing myself uh, as a, as a, as a middle-aged adult in the EJ world. Uh, because if you don't know what you don't know, you, you got to read about it. You got to study about it. You got to 
talk about it. And that's what I did. My uh, next slide, please, Andre. And so my um, my last two slides for you are basically links. And I'm going to talk a little bit about them. But when I think about uh, EJ and climate, and the reason why I have, and uh, I see, yeah, Andrea will share these slides later, because I want you to have the links. Because a lot of people, especially with the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, uh, the nonviolent protests that they, they, they are engaged in right now, a lot of people don't understand uh, or, or they don't quite get it why people are so angry. So I like to, I like to just give you some facts that will help you. So those first two links do that. The first one is, is the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Midwest, um, and what happened there. I think they even got a movie out about it now. Um, but, and there's a whole lot of history, but a lot of times, if you're like me, you want to be able to point to something, and that points to what happened in Tulsa, how that whole community, the Black community, was destroyed. It's only one Black community that we have a record of, but there were very, there were many. Many, many. And that, that stuff rose and, and, ta and is talked about in my family and other Black families, and we know about this stuff. Maybe you may not know about it, but we do. And it hurts us to this day. Uh, people may not know what systematic racism is. So I got a USA Today article there for you. And all these articles are, are, are coming within the last three to four months. I, I, so these are just things that you can look at later. But they're important that uh, for me to share these with you so you will understand that this is just not out of somebody's pain or heart. There are, there are factual research articles on, for example, from Columbia University, why climate change is an EJ issue. For example, from Harvard Medical School, why uh, extreme heat is an issue in um, urban communities. Um, you have, I think you have uh, uh, some, uh, the Center for Earth Energy and Democracy is, uh, the executive director is Dr. Cecilia Martinez. If you don't know her, She's, she's out of Minneapolis. Uh, I would suggest you click on, I got her uh, website right there. Click on her website and learn about what she's doing because, you know, she has a clean power plant training that is on her website that if you, and of course, this administration has not got a clean power plant, but I remember working on it with Janet and it, I think it was the best thing we ever did because what we did and Janet was adamant about this, was that she did not want to get it wrong. She wanted to get it right. So we had multiple stakeholders from stakeholders from every walk of life talking about this and, and, and trying to help EPA figure out how to, how to uh, you know, formulate this plan. So we had industry, we had uh, environmental groups, we had uh, uh, EJ community groups, we had state and local government, we all came together. And I think it was a fabulous clean power plan. And I just read an article the other day that said what happened to it. And, and you can imagine, I don't have to talk about it. The other one, the last slide there is um, a, a link to the NAACP page on environmental justice. And the reason why I put that there is because that uh, group that particular group in the NAACP is doing wonderful stuff across the nation. They're writing 
great things. They're doing, um, people always want to know about definitions. They have great definitions. Uh, so it's something as you, if you're a local official, you may want to, to look at, even though you're not a member of the NAACP, you can learn from their website. Uh, uh, last slide, please. Uh, I want to talk to you about the recent role of Congress, because this is so important. I mean, this, in the last year, uh, the House has done so much. They are off the charts working on environmental justice, off the charts. Um, uh, they have, especially, the, um, of course, the Natural Resources uh, uh, Committee in the House, they are doing webinars, and uh, I mean, they have like a webinar every every other week on environmental justice or, or climate or poverty. And so um, it's something you might want to check out and, and get go on that web page and, and uh, register. It's all free and it's all educational. Um, the other thing I want to do, and that's at the top of the, uh, the, the first bullet there, is New Jersey governor. Uh, New Jersey governor just signed a landmark EJ bill. And it's landmark because it's the first cumulative risk bill uh, signed by a state. And I've been hearing rumblings that there's a whole lot of states are going to take that bill and look at it and see how that can be uh, implemented in their own state and how they can write their own state bill. Because according to the EJ uh, organizations and anyone who works with them, EJ is not just a lead issue. It's just not, it's not just a um, air issue. It's a multiple diverse issue because it impacts. Uh, we live in a community that faces various um, uh, uh, ills and, and pollution, and you know, water, land, air, and we have to learn. Uh, that we have to change from the past and learn that we have to look at all these as a cumulative impact. And um, New Jersey, the reason I put that there is that you can read that bill, you can read what the governor says. New Jersey has done a great job. They did it with the help of their EJ organizations in that state and their, uh, the academic academics from that state uh, who work on EJ. They all came together and pulled this bill out. And I think it's one of our best things out there right now. Right now, it just happened. So that's why I wanted you to have that. Um, uh, the National Resources Committee from the House has actually have an EJ for Act for All bill, and that's listed there. Uh, they worked with the EJ communities to pull that off. I actually was in a meeting in, in the summer uh, when they um, uh, first started uh, coming together around that bill. And um, I was really, uh, actually it wasn't in the summer, it was just before COVID. So <laughs> we were any going going anywhere this summer. It was just before COVID. And um, I was I was surprised, happily surprised that um, uh, Nancy Pelosi came in and, and, and gave her verbal support of it. So that's being um, uh, talked about now. Of course, it hasn't been passed Senate yet, but at least we have it passed, it, it passed the House. And the last bullet there that has three bullets underneath of it is about the National Black Caucus of State Legislators. I don't know if any of you belong to them, um, but um, on this call, 
but they have been coming out on with their own EJ platform and I wanted to give you some of those links because they are doing tremendous work now. And um, I don't think they were doing that uh, other than maybe a year ago. And so that's something that you should you should check it out because even though if you're not a member of the National Black Caucus of State Legislators, some, one of your colleagues is a member and you should see what they're doing on this. And um, the very last little bullet there is a video. And the reason why I put that there, because you don't want to, I don't, you know, it's going to, gonna, you need some, you need a moment to talk about that, to look at that video. But the reason why I put it there, because there's a lot of Midwest uh, legislators uh, uh, speaking on that video. And I think that you would probably know some of them. Um, so uh, it's something that you should look at um, in, your, in your off time, right? But you should look at because it's it's important that you know what your colleagues are saying, and I'm just excited because I've had a a, a 25 year career in environmental justice. I'm still even though I'm not working for EPA, I still help on a local level. I still uh, work on um, uh, with people who I who have met throughout my life, and um, they still get me on Zoom calls or they or they have me come to their classes before COVID and speak to speak. Uh, and I think that it's um, it's important that for me in my field, that's what my PhD is in, that I stay active. I just had a call this morning from a guy from Tufts who wants me to be part of their uh, platform they're doing up there. So I stay active. That's how I stay active. And, and I love this. This is somebody told me a long time ago, EJ is not a job. It's a way of life. I made it my way of life. And I'll be, it'll be my way of life until I'm gone. And I want to end this presentation with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So um, it's actually in the book of Matthew in the Bible, uh, but uh, he put it, uh, he put it in this, in this way: the rich nations must use their vast resources of wealth to develop the underdeveloped, school the unschooled, and feed the unfed. Ultimately. A great nation is a compassionate nation. No individual or nation can be great if it does not have a concern for the least of us. He said that in his Nobel Peace Prize uh, speech. And I think it was 84. So anyway, that's it for me. Passing it to you, Brenda. <laughs> hey, um, thank you, Dr. Keene. It's a pleasure to be on panel with you. So I look forward to just having more conversations with you in the future. Um, so I also want to thank Dr. McCabe and Andrea Webster for organizing or hosting this webinar um, because um, racial inequalities is a very needed conversation as uh, a conversation that needs to be had with a lot of people who, you know, maybe a little bit. Um, Apprehensive. Don't know how to move forward with this conversation, actually. So, uh, uh, Dr. King, we will be tapping into your, you to help work with some of our nonprofit organizations who are moving uh, or having these discussions around environmental issues. So, we'll be glad to have you in, uh, as a guest. Um, so, the city of Gary, um, uh, so the other thing is. Thank you for sharing a lot of resources that are available 
so that we don't have to go out and look for those things. We know someone who to come to, or we can just look at some of the links that you shared in your presentation so that we can uh, be better educated and do better services in terms of uh, addressing climate change. So um, the city of Gary uh, has been fortunate to work with uh, US EPA and some other organizations, particularly in moving sustainable development uh, planning and practices forward in the city of Gary. And we'll talk about some of those things in my presentation. So first of all, let me share my screen with you so that you can see my presentation. my screen yet? Not yet. Okay. All right. Yeah, there we go. Oops. Let me just pull it up here. Okay. So today I'll talk to you a little bit about how um, the city of Gary has been using uh, doing some capacity building, climate resilience um, activity in the city uh, for a while now. So um, my topic discussions will include um, climate stressors, so I'll identify some of those stressors that we have in air, land, and water quality. We'll talk about some of the programs that we use to incorporate community engagement. It's at the forefront of what we do. And then I will uh, talk about, lastly, our climate resilience and recovery planning process and how the public can be involved in that and how we are recruiting right now for people to be a part of the um, our work group. And this is through our program with the Indiana University ERI in developing a climate action plan for the city of Gary. All right, um, the city of Gary, for those of you who may not know, uh, is located on the shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, we are at the most southern tip of Lake Michigan, but we are not, um, we have a population of less than 80,000 people, probably about 70,000 people right about now, uh, about 50 square miles, so that's a pretty large area that we have to maintain as a public, as a public leaders or public officials. Uh, there are about 12 neighborhoods uh, that are covered, and you can see those highlighted here. But the most important part, one of the most important um, uh, assets that we have is our natural environment. So we're um, located on Lake Michigan. We have two major rivers, the Little Calumet River and the Grand Calumet River, which are headwaters for Lake Michigan. And then we have uh, lots of conservation and preservation areas that are located within our boundaries. And I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But we have over 50 parks 
that are in our community. And as we've uh, begun to, starting in the previous administration, we did a lot of community planning, and we were fortunate enough to have a um, uh, EPA, the Department of Transportation, and Community Development, who, um, uh, or HUD, who um, worked with the city of Gary to do some of this work. And then later on, uh, we had uh, a designation of a strong city, strong community um, from the White House. So we had a, a, a staff of uh, federal employees who were housed at City Hall to help us work through some of the many challenges that we have as a community in terms of um, advancing the city and moving forward. Um, so um, we were excited to have those resources available in our city that ended up with us coming up with several neighborhood plans. Uh, and at the forefront was community engagement. Everything that we did in terms of neighborhood planning, there were partners, uh, alliances, there were uh, with other organizations. Um, but we were able to do lots of things in terms of uh, moving our city. So one of the first stressors that I will talk about, and I'm having a problem in moving it, is air quality. So within our department, we have, uh, we were established by ordinance to do air and land quality activities for the state, for the city and then the state. And so uh, under that program, we uh, help with some of the uh, monitoring and enforcement. So we work along with uh, US EPA and the Indiana Department of Environmental Management uh, on air quality issues. Um, we are considered uh, as a non-attainment area for Lake County and Porter County, Indiana, meaning that we still do some um, um, activities in order to uh, help reduce, well, we set some goals in order to reduce our impact on air quality. Um, so maybe around in about, uh, let's see, 2017, I want to say, 2016, uh, we met with the U.S. EPA and we were designated as a, a making a visible difference community. So we have this alliance with EPA to do more monitoring, air quality monitoring, reporting uh, on environmental issues that are occurring in our city. You may go to the website. There, we, there is a link to... Um, I have to share with you on some of the monitoring locations within the city of Gary. Uh, so as you look at this map, you'll see that um, some of our planning, uh, we've identified areas where we can do uh, economic development. So like the Buffington Harbor or airport, these, these different uh, uh, lakefront district, light industrial district, these are areas where we want to focus economic development. You can see that it's also equal, it's layered on, on the top of this map, it's layered uh, the green link. So the green link is this, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, this area where we have lots of green spaces that have been identified in the city and we wanna make sure that we can um, uh, improve the conditions of those 
green spaces in order to help the earth heal itself, improve the air quality, improve land quality, and definitely address our water quality issues. We participate in a Brownfields program. We have a Brownfield Coalition Group for Northwest Indiana that um, Gary Hammond in Chicago worked with, and then we also um, make sure that EPA can do the things that they need to do at the super fund sites that are located within our, our city. I think there are, there are over 20, um, definitely over 10 locations that I've identified, but I think it's around about 23 super fund sites that we may have in the city of Gary. Um, then there's uh, wetland protection that is important uh, to us. So we are responsible for, we help work with our, our city, other city departments in order to identify where wetlands are and then also um, ensure that we are protecting those spaces from the, the impact of development on those spaces. Um, our third climate stressor I would identify is uh, water quality. So uh, we've worked with the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Cities Initiative in which they received a grant from Calisa uh, to do a climate adaptation project. And this, uh, from that program, we uh, develop a tool. We call it a climate resilience infrastructure and sensitive site protocol that will help us to um, uh, identify areas where we need to invest, ca do capital improvement projects to reduce the impact of uh, stressors, I would say, whether it's air, land, or water, and impeding the city from moving forward. Uh, that's a tool that we've used and we will continue to use in terms of um, identifying how we move forward with addressing uh, climate change. Uh, and and in, this, uh, in these two graphs, you can see that we have definitely increased number of, of wet days, wet weather that is happening in our community. Our water levels are increasing constantly, and uh, our groundwater table is also uh, in jeopardy. Um, just in last year, if you compare last year to this year, uh, we've had um, in, in May 2019, that was about 8.25 inches of rainfall. If you compare to some other time, we were talking about um, the average rainfall for Gary in the month of May is about 3.8 inches. So you can see the significant increase of, of water that is happening here. So we definitely need to prepare for um, managing that storm water. Um, and we will do that through uh, investing in our water infrastructure. Right now, the mayor, our mayor, uh, Jerome Prince, has been uh, working with the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Citizen Initiative uh, and other groups similar to them, and we're advocating for Great Lakes dollars in order to improve our water infrastructure. Um, so we've completed our green infrastructure planning uh, for the city, and we based it upon uh, an existing plan that we have, which is the Green Link. And here again, you see the layers of um, these are. This is a 30-mile uh, multimodal trail that we've 
kind of planned for, having completed the development and uh, building it, constructing the uh, Greenland plan. But it's ideal, just the plan that we would use in order to connect our green spaces around the city. And on the west side over here, where you see the Brunswick neighborhood, we have a group who has been working with us, the Field Museum, the Audubon Society, um, the Shirley High Land Trust, and some more partners who have been working on this west side to um, identify, they completed a quality of life um, assessment and we are working with residents to show how each of them can be good neighbors to each other. So we're saying if you are, if you are um, living around a preservation area where they've invested lots of resources into these spaces, uh, how do we uh, work together in a community? So we've asked our conservation groups to do more outreach to citizens in those areas, to educate them about the importance of the preservation areas and then vice versa, they are teaching our residents how uh, important it is to have an appreciation for our green spaces and how do we protect them. So there's been a lot of tree planting and native planting and tour days in which we just uh, invite the public to come out and tour those those green spaces. So community engagement is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the tools that we use uh, to um, get citizens input into everything that we do in terms of moving the city forward. Uh, we have had the fortunate opportunity, as I mentioned before, for federal government and state government to help build the city's capacity to move the city forward. And we are passing those tools down with our, to our citizens. So we organize, uh, we have organized groups like the, um, around our farming activities. So, you know, in order for you to increase access to local food, we have to make sure that the soils are good. So uh, if, you're, if you have soils, your, your land quality, your air quality, and water quality are crucial to farming. Uh, we work with uh, USDA to come up with a local food, local place action plan. Uh, the citizens, of the, we invited citizens out over a couple of days, and they actually pulled together the activities that they would like to see move forward from that process, we've uh, worked with uh, Purdue University. There's uh, the Gary Food Council has established themselves as a nonprofit organization. And we're also working with Indiana University. So we have a, about collectively, that was in the Legacy Foundation, so we must can't miss them. Uh, they're helping us with our farmers market. But uh, these individuals uh, collectively have secured 700, over $700,000 to advance our urban ag activities in the city of Gary. Um, just recently, we started working, well, not just recently, but in a, a, the last two years, we've worked with the Gary chapter of the NAACP, who now has resources to bring community solar into our community. Those are one of the challenges, like how do you bring uh, renewable energies into a community where it's, you know, people are uh, mostly focused on how there's a, how they will, uh, invest home improvement dollars. So will they do the roof or will they do the inside of their home? 
so that you have those options that homeowners or residents will have in terms of addressing uh, climate change or reducing our carbon footprint. And, and partners like them are what will help us to do this job. We can't do it independently. I don't think that government should lead those, lead those uh, efforts, but I definitely believe that government can change policies to make it easier for uh, community groups to get things done. Um, uh, we are actively involved in uh, pollution prevention and cleanup, and this is through our stormwater program. So we started out doing programs like uh, Love Your Block or Cities uh, uh, Connecting Children to Nature and organizing community cleanups or providing cleanup kits to uh, groups who were, block clubs, who were trying to do um, cleanups in their neighborhood. And we thought that this strategy will, if they achieve a small cleanup area, can you imagine what you can do if citizens come together on different issues that are going on in their community or in their particular neighborhoods and blocks? It's, a, it's amazing, it's impactful. We must have citizen participation in order to move uh, things forward. And I'm not sure how I am on time, Andrea, please let me know, but I could go on and on about this. But uh, one of the things that we've done, and I have to give a shout out to my staff, uh, in, in terms of building the capacity of our municipal employees, um, we had uh, Pete Julevich, who is our air quality manager, make sure he has the certification so he can offer those services in-house. So now we are empowering citizens with um, our employees with skills so that they can do their job better. Thank you so much for listening. All right, ladies and gentlemen, good people. Uh, thank you so much for listening in. We are going to hop right back into it. You are listening to uh, Frequency Bay with your host, me, Madam Butterfly. More, uh, even more as we develop um, plans such as our climate action planning process. I think I am way behind on my schedule. But, um, um, so the final thing I want to discuss is how we are moving our climate resilience and uh, recovery action plan forward. Um, we, it took us a few years to get, this, get to this place. And I think that in involving citizens uh, in processes, you do have to take your, you have to take a slower pace. You have to have a slower pace in terms of moving things forward. Yeah, we just said, oh yeah, we want to do this particular project and we can just take on the initiative as a local government and just do it, but do you really have the support of the community in terms of um, moving things forward? So it does take time when you're doing these plans. Uh, the first year we did our, um, just an inventory of all of the sustainable development activities that we've done from the from local government and some of our uh, nonprofit partners. Secondly, the second year, we completed our greenhouse gas inventory. This year, we're working on our climate action planning. So I'm thankful to Indiana University um, and allowing us to have an extern who was assigned to the city to help us work through that process. And now that Gary has done it, we have other communities who are interested in moving it farther, moving 
uh, doing their greenhouse gas inventory in Northwest Indiana. So we're excited that we're not in this alone, but there are other people that are doing it, which will make it easier for us to get the data that we need in order to make sure that our, our work is a little bit more, uh, a little solid there. Uh, we, in our um, uh, greenhouse gas inventory, for example, um, we did not have our transportation uh, data. It was really challenging to get that information. We were on a timeline, but uh, I think other uh, communities will not have to go through that cause uh, those challenges because um, uh, the uh, South Shore Clean Cities is going to make sure that we have access to that information. But this is our process here. So we're gonna, we are establishing an advisory team. We will set those uh, emission reduction goals, establish a timeline, and then uh, move on to uh, having the, that advisory committee be responsible for the evaluation and monitoring of the program in alignment with local government. Uh, let's see, uh, the pictures that you see here are just examples of uh, some information that we received, uh, 103 surveys uh, as of uh, September uh, 2020. We are encouraging Gary residents to um, still take the survey. This, inf this information is available for you on our web, on our Facebook. So if you go to City of Gary, uh, Office of Sustainability and Environmental Affairs, you'll find us on social media. <coughs> um, let's see. Um, I think that in this, this is a list of some of the projects that we worked on, this climate resilience and uh, sustainability efforts. Hold on. So I'll talk about one that I haven't mentioned yet. Oh, just um, in um, 2016, we were able to work with the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy to come up with a clean energy for low-income communities um, um, action plan that we are moving forward and it's centered around renewable energies and energy efficiency activities. Uh, so programs like weatherization, healthy homes, um, neighborhood, um, uh, community solar are some of the uh, deliverables we would like to see in the city of Gary. We are working with businesses who have uh, sustainability plans or, corporate, or doing corporate social responsibility activities. Um, uh, just yesterday, uh, Celeste Corporal and I met with uh, a industrial company who was excited about working with us uh, to do a, um, a project this year um, because they have goals to do sustainability activities every year and it's a competitive, uh, in a competitive nature. And so we look forward to working with this organization to support our climate youth summit that we have every year that is, um, uh, last year that was hosted by the Gary chapter of the NAACP. Oh, I'm so excited about us working with our U.S. Forest Services and our conservation groups who are planting trees in Northwest Indiana. We have a, uh, and why, why tree, trees are important for improving our air quality and manage, doing green infrastructure in the city of Gary. So um, we've taken on that charge and uh, and the programs are coming out really well. We just 
recently uh, removed about 80 uh, ash trees, and now we are moving into working with citizens to identify where should we plant, uh, replant 80 trees, new trees uh, in the city. So I, I'm backing up. I, I, um, I want to thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to share some information about what's going on. Uh, Andrea, I will make sure that I put, um, give you links to all of the resources that we have, I have in my presentation, but if there are any questions, I'll be happy to respond. Brenda, uh, thank you so much, and, and thanks to Marva as well. Um, uh, it's amazing what's going on in Gary, it's truly amazing. We do have a couple of questions that, that have uh, come in, and I'll invite um, either of you to respond. Um, one question is, uh, why is it called environmental justice instead of environmental action or environmental issues? Um, and, and related to that from the same person is, what is the significance of race in environmental justice? And Marva, I see you smiling and nodding, so I'll, uh, I'll turn that one to you. Yeah, thank you, Janet. Um, so that's why I, I, one of the things I did, especially in my earlier slide, I gave you some, some history, right? And it's very important to, to look at the history of things. And in 1987, the Union, um, I mean, the United Church of Christ, uh, 1987, the United Church of Christ did a commission on, um, for, on a racial justice study. So they looked at, and they just looked at the Southeast, wasn't the Midwest, but they just looked at the Southeast and they looked at where all the hazardous waste facilities were. And the, the finding was three out of four of every had on all those hazardous waste facilities were located predominantly in low income and uh, uh, racial people of color communities. But race was the most significant factor. Race was. Income was second, but race was the most significant factor. And if you, and if you do your, um, uh, do your research, if you continue to do your research, that, that was in 87, you continue to do it, that comes up every time anyone is doing any type of study. Um, actually, that study was revisited 20 years later. So recently, they had a, 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 a revisited, they revisited that study, and people on that study was Paul Mohide, he's at the University of Michigan, uh, Dr. Robert Bullard, you might see him, he's written like 20 books on environmental justice. Um, so there was a lot of the same people in that study, but of course there were students involved, and they found out the same thing. The results were the same thing. Three out of four pollutant facilities were in uh, people of color and low-income communities, with race being the most significant factor didn't change in 20 years. And, um, and so uh, when, and of course, uh, uh, President Clinton, when he did his um, executive order, he, he did it based on, uh, you know, people of color. Back then they called it minority. People don't call themselves minority anymore. But people of color and um, poor people. So that's what you'll find in environmental justice. People of color and poor people are the most impacted. Uh, but race is still the most significant. And so uh, I, I suggest, you know, it, it, it's all in, in my, when you get my presentations, just read some of that stuff I, I mentioned in, in there. 
and you'll see for yourself. That's why I always think people need to see for themselves, right? And um, if you read some of those books, if you read some of those articles, it, uh, it's still the same. It hasn't changed. Actually, according to my 89-year-old mother, race is worse than it was in her day. So it's still there. I would like to add that in terms of redevelopment and investing dollars into those um, target neighborhoods, it's even more challenging because now the you have to go back. We'll, so, for example, in the Black Oak area where it's really wet over there, so there, um, there's a lot of flooding that occurs. Uh, there are a lot of homes on septic systems. So those are, uh, they're located not too far from the Little Calumet River. So when you start, um, we've had support from our uh, uh, congressional um, uh, supporters, um, you know, leaders in terms of investing, doing water infrastructure projects in those areas, but it's not enough. So we need to do more investing in those neighborhoods. And how do you get those dollars when you're living in a low-income area, the tax base is not as it is, let's say, for the opposite of Miller, who has higher-end homes, moderate homes, where you, you're collecting a greater uh, a, a dollar from, or your Tolleson neighborhood, small farm neighborhoods, where they have a little bit more resources. So people do to the hospital, uh, doctor, medical facilities. 
So not to the level that it's consistent, consistent I would say, but there is some training going on. Great. So um, we have another question here for Brenda. Um, having limited resources, funding and others, how does Gary navigate the tensions between short-term and long-term impacts or between coping and adaptation? Oh, we, we, we try to take on the things that we know that we can be successful at, I would say. So with the climate adaptation, it's a little bit easier than mitigation. Mitigation meaning that we have to uh, identify resources in order to resolve that issue. So I would consider uh, our mitigation efforts go into our stormwater uh, improvement, our capital improvement projects. That would be an example of one. And then where you have adaptation, we look at our park department in some of the sensitive areas that they have. How can our golf course respond quickly after a severe flooding event? And our stresses are primarily wet weather, associated with wet weather or flooding. But it's, it's, which is most critical. And I wish we could get away from thinking about things just as Addressing the dire need that you just have to find those dollars to deal with and start more capital improvement and strategically uh, aligning projects so that we can address issues before they get to the critical point. I, but um, that's the best that I can answer <laughs> that question because the dollars are limited and you just have to figure it out. But I think that um, at some point, going to have to figure out how uh, our citizens can really uh, help us to resolve those. And that's why we use community engagement when we're doing planning work. Well, um, we have gone one minute over our promised hard stop at one. Um, uh, I, I want to thank everybody who's uh, joined us today. I want to thank those of you that put thoughts into the chat box. Um, I, I want to thank Andrea for making this run so smoothly. And I especially want to thank Marvin King and Brenda Scott Henry for joining us today and for everything that they do. Um, we will look forward to providing you with more information and things to read. I, um, uh, having a reading list curated by Dr. Marva King is um, a pretty awesome opportunity for all of us. So um, thanks again. And everybody have a wonderful day. And please do stay safe and well. Thank you. Welcome. This talk is sponsored by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication at the Yale School of Environment. My name is Joshua Lowe, and I'm the Partnerships Director for the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, or YPCCC. I'm so excited for today's panel, talking about how to translate research into action and power for environmental justice organizations. We have a rock star panel. I'm frankly kind of giddy, but I have some house kitty housekeeping to do first. Based at the Yale School of Environment, the Center for Environmental Communication, YCEC for short, focuses on four areas. We conduct research on the psychological, cultural, and political factors that influence environmental attitudes and behavior. Second, we teach students and train working professionals. Third, 
we convene a global network of climate communication scholars and practitioners. And finally, we inform and engage the public through environmental journalism, including Yale Climate Connections, a climate-focused news service that engages many thousands of people every day and includes a short daily radio story that airs on more than 680 stations nationwide. And there's a podcast that you can subscribe to in your podcast app uh, that is a great uh, little tidbit of environmental news every day. Some logistics, the chat is closed. Please use the question and answer feature at the bottom of your screen to ask questions and to upvote other people's questions. We have folks monitoring the questions, so be assured that your question will be seen. We'll make a recording of today's conversation available on our website and send it to everyone who is registered. Today's talk will be moderated by Professor Gerald Torres. Professor Torres is a professor of environmental justice at the Yale School of Environment with a secondary appointment as professor of law at the law school. A pioneer in the field of environmental law, Professor Torres has spent his career examining the intrinsic connections between the environment, agricultural and food systems, and social justice. His research is into how race and ethnicity impact environmental policy has been influential in the emergence and evolution of the field of environmental justice. His work also includes the study of conflicts over resource management between Native American tribes, states, and federal governments. Previously, Torres taught at the Cornell Law School, the University of Texas Law School, and the University of Minnesota Law School, serving as associate dean at both. He is also former president of the Association of American Law Schools and served as deputy assistant attorney general for Environment and Natural Resources Division of the U.S. Department of Justice during the Clinton administration. With that, uh, welcome for Professor Torres and over to you for moderation. Thank you and uh, thank everyone for, uh, for joining us this, uh, this afternoon. I hope this uh, panel, uh, oh, I know this panel is gonna be excellent. I hope that you get everything you out. Be sure to, uh, Put your questions in the question and answer uh, using the question and answer function. We'll try to get to those at the end if we have time. Uh, let me go ahead and introduce the panel in the order in which they'll be uh, they'll be uh, speaking. Uh, first is uh, Dr. Jennifer Carmen, who is the deputy research manager at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Her work supports the development of strategies to foster behaviors and personal, social, and environmental benefits through times of general environmental change and stress. Jackie Patterson is the founder and executive director of the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for black frontline climate justice leadership. Prior to the launch of the Chisholm Legacy Project, Ms. Patterson served as the senior director of the NAACP Environment and Climate Justice Program for over uh, a decade. Dana Johnson served as the senior director of strategy and federal policy and we act for environmental justice and has moderated conversations about equitable policymaking on behalf of the New York Bar Association, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Water Club. We act is one of the oldest environmental justice uh, groups in the country. I believe it was the first black led environmental justice group. Uh, so I welcome you all and I turn the floor over to, uh, to Dr. Carmen. 
thank you so much, Professor Torres, for introducing me, and uh, thank you to my fellow panelists for joining me today. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, so I'm about to share my screen. This is always a little uh, uh, fraught. We'll make sure that this works. So uh, just a second. All right. I, the, my screen should be shared now. And so thank you very much again for joining me. I'm really excited to be here. And so our panel today is talking about how climate justice organizations use public opinion data to win. And I'm here to set the stage by talking about what that public opinion research conference does. And so to give you a roadmap for my remarks today, first I'll be giving a background for this research, then I'll be sharing some key results and takeaways, and then I'll look forward to talk about some potential next steps. First, to give you some background, I want to share how YPCCC has used data in the past to help climate organizations answer key questions for their campaign. For those who don't already know, uh, YPCCC conducts scientific research on public attitudes, behaviors, and policy support regarding climate change. And one of our priorities is to help other organizations in the climate movement use our data to help their campaigns. And so one question we help them answer is, what are the current levels of support for climate policies? And we, level the, we measure this support at the national level through our Climate Change in the American Mind study. And we've also tracked support for many of these policies over time. We've also done data analysis to show where support is highest for these various policies throughout the US. And we've also worked with partners to help them identify who these supporters are at the local level and develop the method to turn that support into action. And so this analysis asked, how much do, people, do Americans support policies really? Collected a vast amount of data on support for a lot of different climate policies over the years, but we want as important as they are, there's not a whole lot of level data or analysis on how much support they have. And so and my, few, my fellow panelists will also talk about additional gaps in this research. Um, but we knew that we, if we wanted to start exploring these issues, we'd really need to reach out to experts in the field to get their input on what kind of data would even be useful to analyze. Because our researchers at YPCCC are experts on survey data and public opinion on climate change, but we're not, and I'm not, an expert on climate justice. And talking to experts is best practice in research in general, but it's especially important when dealing with justice issues because, speaking as well, uh, bluntly, a well-meaning white person, um, it's really easy to screw up, like entering into these conversations if you're not careful, um, and even if you are careful. And so it was very important for us to have these conversations and to get input from the people that who would be affected by this data. And so we reached out to the Yale Center for Environmental Justice to work with them on collect on figuring out what research from all of these piles of data we collected might be useful to organizations who are working in the climate justice movement. And through our work with them and with conversations with other organizations in the movement, we narrowed it down to three federal policy areas related to just transition or moving away from fossil fuels in a way that advances social justice. And so these three areas are renewable energy transition or investing in a 100% renewable energy economy, federal investment in frontline communities. And if you haven't heard that term before, that refers to communities who are historically marginalized, but also most likely to feel the strongest effects of climate change first and job creation policies related to renewable energy transition. And these policies represent the climate justice priorities of not just addressing the unequal harms of climate change, which of which there are many, but also providing equitable benefits when developing climate solutions. And so today I'll be presenting data on what we found in these three areas. 
And the reason that we really wanted to highlight these findings is because we found high levels of national support for all of them. In particular, uh, support was really high for job creation policies. For example, 83% of Americans overall support reestablishing the Civilian Conservation Corps, and 81% support creating programs to hire federal other federal programs to hire oil and gas workers to cap abandoned oil and gas wells, and hiring coal workers to close down old mines. We also found that there's high support for investment in frontline communities. For example, 79% of Americans overall support federal funding to increase the energy efficiency in residential buildings in low-income communities. There's also 68% support for increasing federal debt for communities directly to communities who have been disproportionately harmed by air and water pollution. Finally, for the area of the renewable energy transition, there was 70% 70, 70 of Americans support transitioning the entire U.S. economy to 100% clean energy by 2050. And while the climate movement kind of considers this the bare minimum, I find this result remarkable because for many people, this represents a pretty radical change. And it's notable that a really solid majority of Americans are on board with this concept. As part of this analysis, we also broke out support by various demographic groups, including race and ethnicity. And so we also found that support for all of these policies is high across racial and ethnic groups. And particularly, I want to highlight white people, because one misperception is that these policies are not politically feasible because white people don't support them bluntly. And our results show that that's not true, that majorities of people even support these these well, these policies such as renewable energy transition and investment 